Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 42. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be, of the, be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, if you remember from our study earlier, uh, a few weeks ago, when we were in covering this big section of Matthew and where we're ending up tonight, I already shown you that in Micah chapter 7, go back to Micah chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, Jesus, when he talks about how the enemies will be those of his own household and mother-in-law against a daughter-in-law and so on, he's quoting from Micah chapter 7 about the judgment at the end. In Micah chapter 7, go ahead and take a look. It says in chapter 7, verse 1, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned and there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from, from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt, and the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Look closely again at verse 2. The godly has perished from the earth. And there is no one upright among mankind. You do know that there's going to come a point where the rapture is going to occur and God's going to remove the believers from the earth. And at that time, the wickedness of man, which is already there, is going to be no longer restrained. The Bible says when he who restrains is removed from the earth, the wickedness on the earth will be unbelievable. We've seen what mankind does now with the looting and the, the, the mobs and all that stuff. Imagine when God has removed the church from the earth. Folks, it's going to be a horrific time. And so back in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is reminding them that a judgment is coming and there's going to be a division over him and all that. Now, Jesus is teaching that to follow him, though, is to believe in him and to receive him. But it's also to be fully devoted to him. And we see that here in this section that we just read. He just said, I want you to understand you need to be fully devoted to me. Now, Jesus is continuing the theme of his teaching on following him and how it will not make us popular. We looked at that last week, but it will require full devotion in the face of persecution. Let me, let me show you a verse that I really want to pray that you'll kind of allow the spirit of God to kind of put it in your heart. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 15. 
If I were to start quoting to you 2 Corinthians 5, 17, most of you could finish it. How if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is passed away, the new has come. We love that verse. But look at verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 says, And he, this is Jesus, died for all, therefore, sorry, and, and he died for all, that those who might live, or those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you see it? He died for all, that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for who? Exactly. Now go back to verse 37 of chapter 10 of Matthew. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his, what? His cross... And follow me is not worthy of me. Hang on for one second. I want you to see something here. This is the first time that Jesus mentions the cross. At this point, he mentions the cross for the very first time. We have a tendency to kind of read scriptures, understanding the rest of the story. Put yourself in that situation. When Jesus said to his disciples, who were still thinking at this time, that he was coming to set up the kingdom now. And that everything was going to be wonderful and get better and better because he's here. He then says, you must be willing to take up your cross and follow me. When they heard the word cross, well, we wear it as jewelry today, don't we? But what was the picture? If you, if you had told somebody back in the day, back at the time of Jesus, when the Romans were crucifying people left and right, that one day the cross would be jewelry, what, would you, what do you think they would say? They would say you're nuts. You know, someone says it's like wearing an electric chair around your neck. The cross was known very, very well as to be a horrible, horrible, probably the worst way to die. It was a slow, painful, and humiliating death. Jesus ties that, though, with saying no to ourselves. We need to be willing to take up our cross and follow him to die to self, folks, and to follow Jesus is slow, painful, and humiliating to our flesh. We're going to talk about that for a little bit tonight. We're going to talk about denying ourselves and denying our flesh. But Jesus goes on to say, if we're not willing to die to self in order to follow Jesus, we cannot be his disciple. Now, remember, a disciple is not above his teacher. So Jesus himself, when he was on the earth, he said no to his flesh and no to himself and yes to the Father. Now, I preached on this this morning or this noontime at Men in Motion, and I came at it from a totally different angle than we're going to come at it tonight. I wish you could have been there today as I talked to you, and I, I talked to those men, I mean, and I spent a lot of time showing how most of what we do in the church today is actually the flesh and not the spirit. But we have not learned how to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit for so long that we actually have been doing church for years in the flesh and we think it's spiritual. I spent time today dealing with that whole topic. I may come back to it later on. We'll see. But unfortunately, most of what we do in the church is of the flesh. And it's not of the spirit. But we don't know it because we have really never learned to deny ourselves, to say no to the flesh. And so I want to talk to you a little bit tonight about this whole topic. Go with me to Philippians chapter 2. As we read this, keep in mind, may the Spirit of God help you remember that the disciple, as Jesus said, is not above his teacher. Philippians chapter 2, look at verses 5 through 8. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Go to Matthew chapter 16. Look at verses 21 through 27. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, the scripture says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Again, do you see what's going on here? Jesus is doing what the Father is wanting him to do. Peter's looking at it with man's eyes or God's eyes? Man's eyes. Keep reading. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a, shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he'll repay each person according to what he has done. Jump over to Mark chapter 8. I'm doing something here. Skip, skip over to Mark 8 with me. We see this same account in Mark 8, verses 31 through 38. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now we're going to look at Luke's account. Let's go to Luke, go to Luke 9. We really, I think, need Luke's, nine, Luke's account probably the most. Because Luke adds something, or God through the, the, the writer Luke adds something here in chapter 9 that I think will be helpful for us. I wonder if any of you are going to catch it. Go to Mark, uh, Luke chapter 9, look at verses 23 through 26. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his, himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in, the glory, in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Did anybody catch what was different in what Jesus said? Daily. I want to talk to you about that. We all understand, hopefully, what it means to deny ourselves when it comes to getting saved. 
We must acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves. We don't put any confidence in our ability to do anything. We humbly acknowledge, God, I can't be saved unless you give it to me. I can't be righteous unless you give it to me as a gift. There's nothing I can do to earn it. I receive it by faith. And we deny ourselves in order to be saved. But Jesus said that we're to take up our cross daily. We're to deny ourselves daily. That doesn't mean I have to get saved every day. Bible's very, very clear that once you've been sealed by the Spirit, you're eternally secure, and what He's begun, He will finish. But we have never really understood this battle that is going on, that the Scripture says that we need to acknowledge on a daily basis, I have to be willing on a daily basis to lay my flesh down and say yes to the Spirit. Just because you're born again, does that mean you're going to walk in the Spirit? No. That's why the scripture is so full about putting to death what is according to your old nature and putting on the things of the spirit. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter six, don't don't let sin reign in your mortal body. That's why the Bible continually says that we need to daily lay our flesh on the altar. Now you say, Jim, I, I know Romans 12, one and two. Where does it say I need to daily do it? Go to Romans chapter 12. Let me show you. Romans chapter 12, look at verses one and two. See, it's not real clear in the English, but the Greek brings it out pretty clearly. Let me show you. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's your flesh as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Did anybody catch the daily part in there? Does anybody see it? It's in the renewing of your mind. In the Greek, the phrase that's translated, or the word that's translated into a phrase, the renewing of your mind, actually in the tense in the Greek is a daily renewing. It's a continual renewing. We need to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. That means daily, throughout the day, we have to live with an understanding of it's not about me and my desires and my wishes and my will, but it's about the Father's wishes and His will and His plan. And without realizing it, we thank God for our salvation, and then we decide how we think a Christian ought to live. And we try to live the best of our ability, the best of our strength. Y'all grew up, give of your best to the Master. Do you remember that song? Give of the strength of your youth. That sounds really good, doesn't it? But what does the Bible say your best is? Filthy rags. Actually, I can take you to the book of Job, chapter 35, where God's speaking through Elihu, and he says, what does your righteousness give to God? What, do you, what does he owe you because you've been good? Folks, he doesn't want us to give of our best, give of our strength. He wants us to daily say, I need you. I can't do it. But I will because you said you would empower me and I'm trusting you. And your spirit is saying to go here. And even though it goes against everything in my brain and everything in my flesh, I'm going to trust you. Go to Luke chapter 14. By the way, that's going to be a daily battle. You can't you may go down an aisle and cry a river of tears at a service where all of a sudden God gets a hold of you. That doesn't mean tomorrow morning you're not going to have the same struggle. Because the scripture says we have to do this on a daily basis. Luke chapter 14, look at verses 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, sound familiar? It's our passage in Matthew 10. Yes, even his own life, 
he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, this verse has given a lot of people a lot of problems over the years. Because I want to ask a show of hands. How many of you, show of hands, have renounced all that you have to follow Jesus? Does that mean none of us in the room are saved? No. What Jesus is saying is, you need to understand what's involved in coming to me. Thank the Lord he doesn't ask us to give it all up at once, correct? He says, let's begin with take, thinking you can save yourself. And then from there, I'm going to begin to ask you to give a little bit more and give a little bit more and give a little bit more. But if your attitude is, I'll do so much, but I won't do any more than that, Jesus says, you can't be my disciple. Folks, just understand that you have been saved. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them. This is a process. This is a journey. This is slow, painful, and humiliating to have him, deny, have him do a work in us to the point that we have to daily deny ourselves. Oh, I could go on. I could. I want everything in me wants to go where I went today at lunch to talk about how it's manifested itself in our churches. But I'm only going to give you one. You want evidence of how much the flesh has manifested itself in our churches? We spend most of our time fighting over preference. When the scripture says, if you have any encouragement from you united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the spirit, make my joy complete by being like minded, being in one accord Consider others more important than yourselves. Yet what do we do in our churches today? We fight over the music. We fight over the, whether robes are supposed to be worn in the choir or not, whether or not we're supposed to have pews or chairs. We fight over all our preferences, and we think it's spiritual. I've been to too many, hopefully I never go to another one, business meetings, where all we see is the flesh. I had an individual yesterday, I was meeting with an individual yesterday, they told me, I had someone tell me their story, how they came to know Christ, and talked about how they got saved in a church in Georgia, and a month after they got saved, thank God their salvation was real, that way it continued, but a month after they got saved in that same church, they had a business meeting that was so fleshly, the things that were said to each other were so ungodly, this young man who had just gotten saved at 19 years old got up and walked out of the church, never to go back. Yet, as I have been as a pastor in these churches, all I hear is, that's how we do things here, pastor. Now, that's the flesh, and you've called it spiritual. Are you willing to lay it all down? Are you willing to not seek your own or look at it with man's eyes? Let me give you a couple examples from Scripture of people that couldn't do this. Go to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. Verses 18 through 30. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, 
Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In other words, do you really understand that I'm God? Do you, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is none who has not left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. There was an individual who said, I want to follow you. What do I got to do to have eternal life? Jesus said, I'm going to just show you your real heart. You're not really willing to follow me because if I asked you to give it all up, would you? No, he wouldn't. And he went away sad. Go to Matthew 13. Now stick with me here, because Satan's going to want to come in and cause some of you to have a bellyache. So don't get the bellyache just yet. Go to Matthew 13. Look at verses 18 through 23. Jesus said, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That this is what was sown along the path. And as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, he immediately falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The Bible says there's going to be those who say, I believe. But then when trouble comes and God lets mama die and I prayed that mama wouldn't die and then God didn't do what I asked him to do, they walk away. There are others who say, I believe, but then they get a little bit more income and their job gives a promotion and they're able to buy the boat and the car and the big house and all of a sudden the things of the world are a lot more interesting than the things of God. And they fall away because it wasn't real salvation. There are those who cannot be his disciple because they aren't willing to deny self. They're not willing to live only for him and not for themselves. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, look at verses 9 through 11. Second Timothy 4 verses 9 through 11. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, do, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. And get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now, these other people listed weren't all people that went away because of the world, but Demas was. He said, Demas has fallen in love with this world and he's left. He's left the ministry. And he's deserted me. Then he says, hey, these individuals, Titus and others, uh, they're good folks. They're, they're going for the sake of the kingdom and they're doing things they're supposed to. But there's something here that's good news for us. I don't know how many of you know this. I don't have time to break it all down. But when he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Y'all may not know this. This is John Mark, who is also the one that wrote the gospel of Mark. 
who was also the one in Acts chapter 15 we see who had been on ministry with Paul and Barnabas. And when trouble came, he didn't like it. It got too hot for him and he went away. And in chapter 15, we see that Paul and Barnabas get into dispute because when they're going out on their second missionary journey, Barnabas says, let's give Mark a second chance. Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. And they got into such a dispute that they parted company and Paul took Silas and Barnabas took Mark. But by the end of Paul's life, Paul says, you know what? That guy Mark might have been a rascal and ran away at that one time, but God gives second chances. I don't need to ask to show my hands on this one because I know the answer. But how many of you have, are willing to acknowledge, if we were to ask, I were to ask you to raise your hand, are we willing to acknowledge you have not fully forsaken all for Jesus and that there have been times that you live for self and not for him? We all would raise our hands, hopefully, and say many times. But we have a God who says it's a daily thing. I'm not expecting perfection, but ultimately I'm going to get you there. Ultimately, I'm going to get you there. Philippians 1.6, he who began the good work will finish it. By the way, did Peter, the same one that said, Lord, we're not going to let you go to the cross, did he deny the Lord? Of course he did, three times. But God wasn't done with him. Why? Because he knew that what had begun in Peter was real. And it would finish. Folks, I just want you tonight to hear this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, don't be surprised if he keeps pushing your buttons. Don't be surprised if he doesn't keep testing your flesh. Don't be surprised if you don't have a continual struggle in this life. Why? He's teaching you how to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. As we no longer live for ourselves, verses 40 through 42 of chapter 10 of Matthew, as we no longer live for ourselves but live for Christ as his servants, We must keep in mind that if they reject us and our message, they're not rejecting us, but Jesus, the one who sent us. Also, if they do receive our message, it's not us they're truly receiving. It's Jesus and the Father whom they're receiving. For the sake of time, I'm not going to take the time to have you go through it in too much detail. But let me show you a couple things real quick in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verses 10 through 13. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 13. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, well, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Here they were all focused on, well, I think Paul's a better preacher than Apollos. I I follow Cephas and his teachings and all that kind of stuff. By the way, that stuff's still going on. You'd be amazed how many Christians out there today say, I only follow the teachings of Paul. Or how many others say, I actually follow the teachings of Jesus. I don't don't listen to the teachings of Paul. I ignore those books of the Bible because I just follow the teachings of Jesus. We put our confidence in man. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and following. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many were, many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Look again at verse 28. Some of your translations might not say human being. Another translation of that same passage would say, so that no flesh might boast in the presence of God. That's what the word actually is in the Greek. God has intentionally done things in such a way so that what makes sense to us isn't how he's going to do it. He says, I'm going to take the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no flesh can boast in the presence of God. God wants none of us to do anything in our own strength, by our own wisdom, and actually, He'll do it in a way that doesn't make sense, has no human wisdom, so that He gets the full glory and we get none. Yet, let's be honest, have we not individually in our personal walks and in our churches made most of our decisions according to what makes sense to us? I've heard for so long, well, we've got to follow some good biblical, I mean, sorry, business principles. You ever heard that? I mean, you just got to use some business principles here. God says, I take what is and nullify it. I take what is not and make it work. God says, you having trouble paying your bills? Well, yeah. I don't, my paycheck doesn't cover all my bills. God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take 10% of whatever you give and give that to me first. And then watch how the 90% pays your bills. And you say, God, that doesn't work. If my 100% ain't going to pay my bills, there's no way my 90% pay my bills. He says, I take the things that are not to nullify the things that are. You want to you gain your life? Give it up. You got to stop living for self and live for the one who died for you. Now, again, I don't want you to have a bellyache just yet. Go to 1st Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, look at verses 1 through 7. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the what? Oh, so this problem we have in the church isn't new? It's not new, folks. It's been there all along. I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They're just servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Listen closely. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Don't we not today still think, I like that preacher, I don't like that preacher. This guy's really good, this guy's not that good. We still think it has something to do with people. It has nothing to do with people. He who plants and he who waters is nothing. They're nothing. It's God 
who produces the growth. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 says that each of us should use whatever gift we've given as God is assigned to us and according to His power. If someone's preaching and speaking, they need to do it as speaking the oracles of God. If someone's serving in the strength that He provides, listen, so that God may receive glory in everything. Folks, it's time we begin this journey of the daily, slow, painful, humiliating process of denying our flesh and picking up our cross and being willing to follow Jesus, being willing to die to self. He died so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for us. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But the life I do live now, I live by what? Hard work, commitment, duty, faith. I live by faith in the one who died for me. Oh, by the way, um, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. So if you're going to live by faith, you have to know what he's saying. You have to know what his word says, and you have to know what he's saying and how to apply it in each of our lives. That's where we're going to go next. Stop making it about you either way when it comes to sharing the gospel. Stop thinking that you're bad at sharing Jesus and stop being proud if you think you're good at it. Notice how in these verses also Jesus points out that there's a reward for those who believe. Remember, if they receive you and your message, they're really receiving Christ. And if they believe God, if they believe God's the one who opened their eyes. But the Bible says, because you were willing to be used of God and weren't concerned for yourself, but were willingly obedient God will reward you for your faithfulness and your obedience. When? When are we going to be rewarded? In the life to come. So don't worry about whether anybody notices what you've done or how hard you've worked. Don't notice if anybody appreciates all that you've done. How many times over the years I've heard people say, I did all this stuff and nobody even said thanks. I did all this work and nobody appreciated it. Now, I want you to write these scriptures down real quick. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, Matthew 5, 10 through 12, and Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. It talks about how a reward is to be coming later. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26, and Matthew 5, 10 through 12. One last verse before we go to uh, chapter 11 of Matthew. Go to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 18. Proverbs 11, verse 18. It says, the wicked earns deceptive wages. In other words, they think they're, they're, they're getting what they worked for now. That's deceptive wages. What they're doing, they're going to be paid for in time. But the one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. The one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. The Bible says, do not be weary in doing good, but in due time we will reap if we don't give up. Folks, let me encourage you, live for the spirit, not for the flesh. Don't worry about whether or not you're seeing results. Just do what he's asked you to do. Be faithful in the journey, and God will take care of your reward. Be faithful in the process. Don't worry about the product. Leave the product to the Lord. One day you will be rewarded if you don't give up. But if you get focused on how are we doing, how are we? have been, i, I, I got to be honest with you, folks. It, 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 the more I've grown in my walk with the Lord, the more grieved I am by the fact that we, especially I come from a Southern Baptist background, we have a tendency to award all these plaques and 
certificates to the church who had the most baptisms and the per capita giving, and we have all these competitions on who's doing and producing the most. When the Bible says all we're to be focusing on is what He's asked us to do, He's in charge of the results. Yet we honor the flesh. It's not about that. Go to chapter 11 of Matthew. Look at verses 1 through 6. We're going to begin our study here tonight. We're going to come back to this exact same passage next week. It says, When Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples, He went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is the passage we're going to be studying next week in detail and some more, but there's something in here I want to begin which ties to where we just left off in chapter 10. John the Baptist is a perfect example of losing one's life for the sake of Christ. Now, every one of you, your brains went first to the fact that John was put to death in prison, didn't you? I want to show you from Scripture that he gave up his life for the sake of Christ long before he died in the prison. Go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, look at verses 5 through 17. It says, In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, that means they were Levites, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous and before God, walking blamelessly in, the, in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Did you catch this? For God's purposes in John the Baptist's life, he wasn't to drink any alcohol. God, before he was even born, said, for my purposes in John's life, I don't want him to drink any alcohol, no wine, no strong drink. Now, again, be real careful here that you don't all of a sudden say, that means everybody. I'm going to show you scripturally that we should not do that. But for John's sake, would he have sinned if he drank alcohol? Yes, he would have. Because God's plan for his life was that he would stay away from it. Go to Mark chapter 1. Look at verses 1 through 18. 
sorry, not 1 through 18, 1 through 8. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 8. It says, In the beginning, the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. For God's purposes in John's life, he was to live away from people in the wilderness and eat a diet of locusts and wild honey. For the purposes of God's plan for John's life, was he to go around to parties and hang out with people in the city? No, he was to be stay out in the wilderness and to preach a message of repentance. And his life was designed by God to be lived in such a way that he actually he lived on locusts and wild honey. Does that mean everybody else is supposed to live that way? No, be careful. Be real careful. We all want to be God so much that if God tells us something, we want to tell everybody else they got to do the same thing. Go to John chapter 3. Look at verses 22 through 30. John chapter 3, starting in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now John, this is John the Baptist, was also baptizing at Anon in Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and the Jew over purification, and they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, uh, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. For God's purposes in John's life, his role on this earth was temporary. He knew that his job was to point people to Jesus and that once Jesus arrived, he was to slip into the background. By the way, those of us who are preachers and teachers, our job is to point people to Jesus, who is the head. Not to get people addicted to us, not to get people following us, not to be people having, getting our own groupies, if you will, but to be pointing them to Jesus. John's role on this earth was temporary. Now that Jesus showed up, he increases, I decrease. And listen to what he said. A man can only receive what he's been given from above. But wait a minute, haven't we been taught in the church to dream big dreams, to do great things for God? You can be more. You can accomplish great things. But what if that's not God's plan for your life? What if his plan is, is that you live a quiet life and that he uses you in parts of the globe or parts of the world or in situations that he had planned for you and he doesn't have for you to do all these other things? 
That doesn't make our flesh feel good, does it? By the way, this kind of preaching that we get at our big conferences and seminars around the country at our churches, how you can dream big things and do great things for God, um, that feeds the flesh. I told you, this denying self is slow, it's painful, and it's humiliating to our flesh. Are you willing? Are you willing to let God use you for whatever purpose he has? Or does it have to be about you? Go to Luke chapter 3. Most of us would think to ourselves, by the way, um, man, I would have thought that a guy like John would have a little bit more of an honorable death than what he did, went through. Hmm? That's because you know how to function in the flesh and not the spirit. Very eventful in the time that he had. Go to Luke chapter 3, though, and look what happens next now. Luke 3, verses 15 through 20. As the people were in expectation and all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now we're going to read a little bit more about this in just a second. But Herod the Tetrarch, by the way, if you go to Acts chapter 13, you'll see something very interesting. One of the five elders in the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers in the church in Antioch, and it lists them. And one of them is named Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Here was a man who was a godly man and a godly leader in the church there in Antioch. And one of his best friends, close friends, was Herod. He, had, he knew. He knew what the truth was. He just decided to ignore it. But John preached that Herod shouldn't be having his brother's wife. And Herod had him thrown in prison because of it. He didn't just preach about the fact he had his wife, all the other evil things he was doing. And he was very evil, if you know anything about Herod. Because of that, Herod had him put in prison. Go to Mark chapter 6 and see what else happens. Mark chapter 6, look at verses 14 and following. King Herod heard of it, heard about Jesus' fame and what he was doing. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he, had, he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I'll give to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. 
And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oath and his guests, and he didn't want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on the platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Ultimately, John was put to death for righteousness' sake. See, whenever we think about someone giving up your life for the sake of the gospel, we think about dying physically. And many do to this day. But did you notice that John's whole life was a life of denying the flesh? He was never to drink any alcohol because of God's purposes in his life. He wasn't to have the lifestyle of eating like everybody else had for God's purposes in his life. His time and his role in his ministry was to be temporary. And when Jesus showed up, he was to slip into the backgrounds. And ultimately, he died because of righteousness. So uh, does that mean then, like preachers love to do, that you need to no longer drink any alcohol and you can't go to parties and you can't wear nice clothes and you need to be willing to just go die for Jesus? Is that what he's saying to us? Be careful not to play the role of the Holy Spirit in other people's lives, folks. But live the life that God has for you and be willing to lay down your flesh as God is telling you. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Matthew chapter 11. Look at verses 16 through 19. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 16. Jesus says, but what shall I compare this generation to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came, Jesus says, neither eating nor drinking. And they said he has a demon. The son of man came, Jesus came, eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by your deeds. Jesus, in pointing out that here he is trying to get them to respond to what God is doing, and they don't want anything to do with it. He uses this story. He says, how can I describe this generation? You're like children who play in the marketplace. By the way, back in the day, there wasn't all this daycare. And so when mom and dad had to go to the marketplace to work, the kids had to come with them. And so they would just play in the marketplace amongst each other. And what would kids do? They play what kids do now. They play dress up and they play. They watch their parents do stuff and they act like their parents. And so they had seen their parents go to a party. And so they would pretend that they would have a party. And they say, I'm going to play a, a flute and you dance. But I played the flute and you didn't dance. Well, maybe you're not in the mood to dance. Maybe, you're, maybe you want to mourn. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to play a dirge and you beat your breast and pretend you're in mourning. And you wouldn't do it. Jesus said, this generation is, is, is like kids in the marketplace trying to get their buddies to respond, but they won't respond. I'm trying to get you to respond, but you're not responding. Because John came, and he didn't eat, and he didn't drink. And you said he was nuts and had a demon. I show up on the scene, and I drink, and I eat, and I go to parties, and you call me a glutton and a drunkard. So what is it? It's like when I was a pastor. When I was a pastor, people would always say, Jim, you're not out there visiting enough. So I go out and visit more. And then they'd come by the church and say, I was at the church and you weren't there. Well, what do you want from me? <laughs> but did you catch it? How often, though, have I heard too many Christians who aren't willing to listen to whether or not God's telling them to stay away from alcohol, who pridefully say, I can have a drink if I want to. Well, you know what? 
you really can't have a drink if you want to. If you've been willing to give up your life for Jesus. You can have a drink if he wants you to. Not if you want to. You hear the difference? I've heard too many Christians say, I can drink if I want to. The scripture says I can have a drink if I want to. No, it doesn't. It says you have a drink if he wants you to. And only when he wants you to. And how he wants you to. You're no longer living for self. I will tell you straight up, I don't drink. Not because I'm better than anybody. Not because it's a sin for anybody to have a drink. But because of what God has told me and made very clear in my life, the role that he's given me in leadership in the church, I'm to avoid that so I don't cause anybody to stumble and give anybody a reason to question. I have stayed away, and he told me to. It's not because that's how you all are supposed to be, but listen to me. You better only drink if you know God has said you should. Be willing to lay that down for him. Are you willing to deny self? Too many of us take the scriptures and say, scripture says I can do that. Uh, We're not taking the scriptures as a rule book. The scriptures are showing us what truth is, and we let the Spirit of God show us how to apply it. As you know, in John 21, we don't have time to turn there. In John 21, Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die. Peter quickly turns and says, well, how's John going to die? And what does Jesus say? What if I want him to remain alive until I return? What's that to you? Folks, part of denying self is letting God do what he wants in other people's lives and being okay with what he's chosen for your life. Some of you have wanted to have a baby, but you weren't able to, and you get so grieved when you see kids getting pregnant on a date in the backseat of a car. And you've been trying and wanting to have a baby, and you get angry with God. Or you want to be married, and you, you, don't, you see these people getting married, but you want it to be, and, and you want what's in your, listen, these things are all good. If God has it for you, you go to him. And you let him determine what your life is like. When Paul got saved, Ananias, who was sent by God to heal him of his blindness, tells him, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Does that mean all of us are going to suffer the level Paul did? No. Are you willing to take your eyes off of everybody else and put them on Jesus and say, Jesus, show me how to say no to my flesh on a daily basis and yes to you? How would you have me live my life? Go to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll close tonight with Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 34. My question is, are you living according to your principles and how you think the Christian life ought to be lived? Or are you living on a daily basis listening to the Spirit? Hebrews 11, verses 32 through 40. And by the way, the Spirit will never tell you to do anything that contradicts His Word. Hebrews chapter 11, look at verses 32 through 40. You know Hebrews chapter 11, it's what we call the Hall of Fame of Faith, and it lists a lot of men men and women of faith in the Bible. And it says in verse 32, the Hebrew writer says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. By the way, I love that the Hebrew writer runs out of time to get all he wants into, just like I do every week. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, they quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, they were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, they put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, 
Some were tortured. All of a sudden, everything changes right here. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. Did you catch that? Look again at verse uh, 34. Some escaped the edge of the sword. Verse 37 says, others were killed with the sword. Well, what did they do wrong? Nothing. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because it's still coming, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect or complete. Folks, listen to that. The people who received their children back from the dead and they were escaped the edge of the sword were commended for their faith just as much as the ones who were tortured and were killed by the sword. They were commended for their faith. We've gotten to the point that we have made the flesh spiritual and we have rewritten the Bible to make it, you can have your best life now and you can live for self and we've made that spiritual and we've taken a verse here and a verse there instead of the whole of Scripture and I want you to prayerfully begin the journey of daily taking up your cross and denying yourself and letting Him show you on a daily basis what full devotion to Him looks like for you. Not the full devotion that it looks like for me or anybody else. You run the race marked out for you with perseverance. And you watch how God gets glory as you humble yourself before Him. I can ask you to pray for me. I just got a phone call this, this afternoon. I've been asked to fill the pulpit at a church in the area in two Sundays at First Baptist Melbourne. The pastor there is actually going to be, he's been preaching through the book of Job. He's doing a series on the book of Job. And he's asked me to do one message on 35 chapters in the book of Job. 35, he's doing the beginning, he's doing the end. I'm doing the 35 chapters in the middle in one 35-minute sermon. I'm excited about this opportunity because, listen, what the three friends, that's, during, that's all the talking of the three friends and Job back and forth in that whole section. What the three friends did was what we just looked at tonight. The three friends thought they knew what God was doing in the life of Job, and they even used Scripture to preach to Job about what was going on in Job's life when they had no clue. You want to deny yourself? Stop trying to live everybody else's life. Stop trying to be God and tell them how they ought to live and what they ought to do. And you walk with Jesus and you live the life he has for you. And you love the people around you, believing God will finish what he started in their life. And watch what God does as he brings us together. I love you. We'll see you in a week.